apartment. The time is 5.02 p.m. A note that the ringing of cell phones, pagers, and similar devices can still happen virtually and is still prohibited. Please turn your devices off. Due to the COVID-19 health emergency and to protect commissioners, department staff, and members of the public, the Commission on the Environment's meeting room is closed. However, commissioners and department staff will be participating in the meeting remotely. This precaution is taken pursuant to the statewide stay-at-home order and all preceding and proceeding local, state, and federal orders, declarations, and directives. Commissioners will attend the meeting through video conference or by telephone if the video fails and participate in the meeting to the same extent as if they were physically present. Public comment will be available on each item on this agenda. SFGovTV.org are streaming the number at the top of the screen. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to speak. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001 and entering access code 146-047-0763. When connected, dial star three to be added to the queue. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down any other devices. Alternatively, you may submit public comment by email to the department's commission affairs officer at environment at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the commissioners and will be included as part of the official file. I will now call the roll. President Stevenson. Here. Vice President On. Here. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Chu. Here. Commissioner Sullivan. Here. Commissioner Wald. I am here. <laughs> Commissioner Wan. Here. President Stevenson, we have a quorum. Great, next agenda item, please. The next item is item number two, President's Welcome. And this item is for discussion. Hello, everybody. Thank you to everyone who came out tonight to this meeting of the Commission on the Environment. Uh, once again, let me begin by sharing some of the best practices for this meeting. If you haven't done so already, commissioners, I'm gonna ask all of the members of the commission, please mute yourself to minimize background noise. Um, you're going to have to remember to unmute yourself in order to comment when it's your turn to do so. Um, and you can also um, signify that you want to speak. Um, either you can raise your hand and I'll see you, or you can you know, use the little hand raise thing in the right in order to signify when you want to comment. There's staff in the background who will be managing the technological functions during the meeting so that we can switch from any slide presentation to whomever's speaking at the moment. Again, we'll ask everyone to be patient as we make these adjustments. This will be our third virtual commission meeting, and I'm really excited to see that we're getting more efficient and comfortable with every meeting. We've essentially returned to our regular meeting schedule after we had our last policy committee meeting last week, and we have an upcoming operations committee meeting on, on October 21st. Our last meeting in July was truly memorable. We received more than 20 public comments, and it was great to see that level of engagement in a virtual commission meeting. I think that we can all agree that the comments we received were taken to heart and we incorporated them into the letter that I signed on behalf of the commission and sent to the Board of Supervisors. 
The issue of natural gas could not be more timely for any of us because it not only is it our second largest generator of emissions, but it's also a huge threat to public health and safety. The connection between climate change and human health was on full display last week as we saw apocalyptic orange skies and air quality that forced everyone indoors. The fire season in California worsens every year and that compels us to take action here. I'm thrilled to see the natural gas legislation moving forward. In fact, it had its first hearing at the Board of Supervisors Land Use Committee yesterday. Now that the city's electricity supply is approaching zero emissions, eliminating natural gas is the next big climate step forward for San Francisco. The commission has weighed in and I'm confident that the Board of Supervisors is going to move this forward. We are already seeing the effects of climate change all around us and now is the time to act. Is there any public comment on the president's welcome? Katie, let's open up public comment for this item. Great, so we'll now open for public comment. I'm going to share my screen with the comment information. Okay, and if you would like to make a public comment, please dial the phone number and follow the instructions on the screen. And if you are on hold in the queue, please wait until it is your turn to speak. And we'll just pause for a few seconds now to give everyone time to call in in case anyone would like to make a comment on this item. It looks like we have one caller with their hand raised. You'll need to unmute them. Okay, great. Or you can make me host. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to unmute the caller and start my timer. Okay, caller, your time starts now. Hi, this is Susan Karasoff with the California Native Plant Society. I'm a San Francisco resident and I appreciate everything the Department of Environment is doing to help make us more carbon neutral and more resilient. DOE, Department of Environment, spearheaded the San Francisco Biodiversity Resolution. I'm hoping that that will turn into an ordinance and that every part of the city of San Francisco will plant only native plants, only local native plants to support our biodiversity. So with, with all the emphasis on carbon, please keep in mind that we have additional disasters going on. Um, not just climate change, not just a pandemic, but also biodiversity losses that are immense with hundreds of thousands of dead birds in New Mexico, Colorado, and Texas due to smoke from wildfires pushing them out of their usual migratory pa patterns. They died because they starved to death. We can feed them, but we need to feed them with our local native plants. So please please continue to push the rest of San Francisco to plant local San Francisco native plants. That concludes my comment. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Okay, and seeing no other callers in the queue, we will now close public comment on this item. Okay, thank you. Hearing no more callers, public comment is now closed. Next, next agenda item, Katie, please. 
The next item on our agenda is item three, approval of minutes of the July 28, 2020 Commission on the Environment meeting. The explanatory document is the July 28, 2020 draft minutes, and this item is for discussion and action. Commissioners, does anyone have any discussion on the draft minutes for the last meeting? All right. Can I please hear a motion? My own motion? We have public comment. Sorry. Um, can I hear a motion to approve the draft minutes? I'll move to approve. Moved by Commissioner Sullivan. Is there a second? I second. Second by Commissioners On and Wald. All right. Is there any public comment on this item? The draft minutes for the last meeting. Okay, we will now open for public comment on this item. I will put the public comment instructions back up on the screen. And if you would like to make a public comment, please remember to press star three to be added to the queue. And if you're already on hold in the queue, please wait until it is your turn to speak. And we'll just pause briefly for anyone to join the queue. It appears nobody has raised their hand. Great, thank you. In that case, we will close public comment on this item. All right, seeing no more public comment, Katie, can you please call the roll? Yes. President Stevenson. Aye. Vice President On. Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Chu. Aye. Commissioner Sullivan. Aye. Commissioner Wald. Aye. And Commissioner Wan. Aye. Great. The motion passes. Katie, next item, please. Right. The next item on our agenda is item four, general public comment. Members of the public may address the commission on matters that are within the commission's jurisdiction and are not on today's agenda. And so with that, we will open once again for public comment, and I will put the instructions back on the screen. And remember to press star three if you would like to be added to the queue. And if you are already on hold in the queue, please wait until it is your turn to speak. And we'll pause once more for anyone who would like to call in. Nobody has joined the queue. Great, thank you. All right, thanks. Next item, please, Katie. Great. Our next item is item five, presentation on the city's economic recovery task force and the role for the environment in recovery efforts. The sponsor is Deborah Raphael, director, and the speakers are Ted Egan, chief economist, Heather Green, capital planning director and deputy resilience office officer, and Maura Fallon-Knight, Business Council on Climate Change Executive Director. And this item is for discussion. Great, Director Raphael, would you like to introduce the item? 
Thank you, President Stevenson. Well, tonight, um, or this time of year, marks about six months of shelter in place uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I think we all remember that day in mid-March when the hammer dropped and Mayor Breed decided that we would uh, be the first city to institute a shelter in place. I don't think any of us had, of course, any idea how long it would be and that we would be here six months later still with no specific end in sight. Um, and we wanted to paint a bit of a picture for you on the commission in terms of the reality of the state of our economy and what some of the discussions have been around how we are going to both respond to the pandemic and then put in place uh, policies and programs that would help us recover from the pandemic. Uh, right now, 54% of our storefronts have been closed. We have about 193,000 unemployment claims. Uh, so when you think about a city of 800,000, 900,000 people, that's a big number. And of course, no one on this call, on this meeting knows what the future holds but we as a commission and we as a department want to make sure that whatever that future is, is not business as usual, it is better than ever before. So that when we are back to whatever normal is, we are looking through the lens of green and true sustainability. So what we want to offer you tonight are three views of San Francisco today and, and some of the voices that are at the table and thinking about how to um, mark that future. And then we're going to open it up to questions uh, and a discussion among the commission to get your thinking about how we weave in environment, sustainability, equity, as well as uh, resilience into these discussions. So first, you're going to hear from Ted Egan. Uh, he is the chief economist in the controller's office, and he will give us the reality check on where we are. And then we're going to hear from Heather Green, who works with ORCP, the Office of Resilience and Capital Planning. And she is going to summarize a pretty phenomenal effort um, of something called the Economic Recovery Task Force. And that task force uh, was called for by the mayor and the board of supervisors, but was led by uh, four remarkable people. Uh, the San Francisco Assessor Recorder, Carmen Chu, San Francisco Treasurer, Jose Cisneros, the President and CEO of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, Rodney Fong, and the Executive Director of the San Francisco Labor Council, Rudy Gonzalez. And they are at the point now um, where there is a final report being produced uh, that reflects some uh, pretty heavy lifting and thinking, and Heather's going to uh, let you know what's probably in that report, as well as what other aspects of the task force. And finally, we're going to end with um, Maura McKnight. Some of you may know as she's the executive director of the Business Council on Climate Change. And she, her members are the largest employers of San Francisco. And so you will get a perspective from the business community, from the um, larger city family, as well as the businesses working together on the task force, as well as the controller's office. And we hope that by the end of those three presentations, um, you will have sort of a, an idea of where we are, where we might go, and then we'll open it up for questions after all three speakers are finished. 
So with that, I'm so grateful that the three of these people, these incredible professionals said yes to being with us tonight. And we will kick it off with Ted Egan from the controller's office. So Ted, take it away. Thank you, Debbie, and good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, my name is Ted Egan. I'm the chief economist in the controller's office. Uh, if you're not familiar with um, my role in the city, I run uh, the Office of Economic Analysis in the controller's office. Uh, we um, do legislative review of new legislation. We write economic impact reports on legislation before the board and also on significant uh, ballot measures that have economic impact. And we also um, help with uh, the city understanding um, how the economy is doing and make a number of presentations like this uh, across the city. So I'm, I'm happy to have this opportunity to present to you today. What I'm going to do is share with you both, I think the current perspective, um, uh, statistics on how the city is doing and also some perspective on kind of where we are um, uh, where we are in this particular economic moment. I think this is not uh, just a public health crisis. Debbie mentioned that we're six months into the shutdown and we're also six months into a severe economic recession that will probably be with us after the public health emergency is over. Um, but it's also no ordinary recession because of COVID. And it's really the interaction between the two of the things, uh, those two issues, the economic and the public health, that I think are going to shape the city's recovery and whether it's major uh, priorities coming out of um, these events. So uh, Katie, if you could show to the first slide. Um, in, in April, when the economics, monthly economic statistics came out, it became clear that the United States had lost 10 years of job growth in one month. And this is the San Francisco Metro Division equivalent of that. You could see we lost about 175,000 jobs between March and April of this uh, year. And that was really businesses being forced to shut down and people being laid off in that time. Uh, despite the fact that we are still in a deep recession, we have had several months of economic growth since then. Since I put this slide together, uh, last Friday, we got the August uh, employment statistics. They also showed moderate growth. And we are now at around 62,000 jobs recovered in the San Francisco, San Mateo County uh, area um, after losing 175,000. So we're roughly a third of the way back. And clearly the recovery while steady from month to month uh, is not nearly as fast as the drop and it will take us some time uh, even if we have no further economic interruptions and no further recurrence of the virus. Uh, that requires um, uh, additional shutdowns, we are still looking at a long economic recovery, at least on the job side. Next slide, please. Uh, it's not simply that we've lost jobs in San Francisco and our unemployment rate went quickly from around 3% to above 12%. It's come down since then. Uh, but the nature of this recession in San Francisco can best be understood by understanding that we've lost certain types of jobs disproportionately. And in particular, there are jobs that affect low-wage workers in the city. This is actually a chart of the economic situation in the city before the COVID crisis. Uh, it shows the employment growth rate of different industries in San Francisco for the five years uh, through 2019. And the vertical, and that's the horizontal axis. The vertical axis here is the average wages of those industries. So you could see the higher up industries, the higher wage industries, information, which is a lot of tech activities, financial services, 
business and professional services. They were both um, the highest wage sectors, but also among the fastest growing sectors in San Francisco. And on the other hand, in uh, sectors like uh, retail trade, accommodation and food services, uh, education and health, uh, were the slowest growing sectors in the city's economy and um, the primary source of employment for low-wage workers in the city. So even before the COVID crisis, we had this sort of unbalanced pattern of growth in the city in which there were far more job opportunities for high-skilled workers than for low-skilled workers. And if we move on to the next page, we can see that the COVID crisis has really exacerbated this. And on this chart, the horizontal axis is the percentage of jobs that were lost between February and uh, July this year in these sectors. Uh, and the vertical axis is the same. So the high wage industries lost between five to 10% of their jobs. Uh, financial activities lost almost none. Tech sector lost five to 10%. Some of the medium wage sectors are doing fine. Construction is basically where it was before. Transportation and warehousing on the other hand has lost close to 20%. But where you really see the loss is in low wage sectors like accommodation and food services, arts um, and entertainment and recreation services and other services which includes a lot of neighborhood services like laundromats and beauty parlors and um, hair places and other kinds of personal services that are available in neighborhoods. And I would put retail trade too as a category particularly retail categories like uh, clothing stores have been very badly hit and have not yet recovered. So these are low wage industries in San Francisco that have been hit the hardest after already having the weakest jobs recovery for the preceding five years. And it has really uh, exacerbated the divides in the city's labor markets uh, that we had seen prior to COVID. Next slide, please. Here's, a, here's an example of this from not official government data. This is data from OpenTable, the restaurant reservation website. And it's showing the annual change in restaurant reservations. They release this data every day since the start of COVID and they're showing it, they have it for different cities here. I'm showing San Francisco and four other West Coast cities. You can see, you know, late February, early March, things were slowing down. And then by the third week of March, everything was at zero. Different cities have recovered to different extents as their conditions have allowed and as their economies have improved. Of these cities, San Francisco's restaurant industry uh, is doing the worst, at least by the standards of having uh, seated um, guests. Um, and uh, of all the cities that Yelp uh, tracks on this across the US, only Honolulu is doing worse than San Francisco. And that's partly due to our um, uh, uh, continuing uh, limitation of indoor restaurant dining, but also to do with our heavy reliance on the tourism industry. Uh, next sector, please. I'm sorry, next slide. Um, another data source that we're looking at is data from MasterCard, which is tracking uh, small businesses in particular that use MasterCard to process their, their customer transactions. So MasterCard knows on a client, on a business by business basis, who is still doing transactions and who's not. And this is a map uh, showing the percentage of MasterCard accounts that were not showing any transactions uh, in the last couple of weeks of July. And unfortunately, we don't have updated data on this. We're trying to get this uh, from a third party source, but it, it is showing you kind of uh, when things were quite bad in, in the middle of July, um, uh, exactly the extent of the shutdown 
uh, at least a temporary shutdown of small businesses across all sectors, uh, really across the city, but heavily concentrated in a number of low-income areas. Next slide, please. I'd also like to talk a little bit about transportation because I think transportation, um, you know, and the, the people's willingness to use certain types of transportation infrastructure is going to shape our recession and our recovery in ways we haven't seen in past recessions. Uh, this is a, a data from the, the County Transportation Authority um, showing uh, the average freeway speeds in San Francisco in rush hour. We've seen big changes in that since the shutdown. Before the shutdown, uh, the average rush hour in the afternoon in San Francisco, highway speed was about 25 miles an hour. After the shutdown, that quickly went up to about 60. And as the economy has gradually reopened and people have gone back to work, the traffic congestion has come back. Uh, so that really by last week, it was only about 10% uh, faster than it was the week of the shutdown. Um, and uh, if you've had the experience riding, you, you may sometimes ask yourself, what shutdown do we still have? Uh, it does seem that automobiles are more of a transportation mode of choice during the recovery that we've had and the reopening that we've had uh, than it was prior. And another way you can see that is on the next slide by looking at the BART ridership statistics, which have really shown a much, much more limited recovery. Uh, this is just BART's raw ridership for a uh, seven-day period. Um, BART is still down between 80 to 90% in terms of total system-wide ridership from last year. So really what, what the way I'm reading this is traffic is back and transit is not back, at least in terms of ridership. And um, that has obviously environmental implications if it continues. Of course, we don't expect it to continue forever, that, but that's where we are now. It's also a consequence of the fact that this is a recession that is not just leading people to lose their jobs and taking away um, you know, their need to commute in some cases, but also it affects their psychology about using public spaces like transit. Uh, and the, the fact that there are more people driving and fewer people taking transit is I think a consequence of where we are in this moment in this particular recession uh, and this particular public health emergency. Next slide, please. Um, I mentioned that the accommodation and food services sector is the hardest hit sector in our city's economy, and it's also the biggest source of job loss with about 45 to 50% of jobs still lost. About half the hotel rooms in San Francisco are not even open, and the hotel occupancy is about 20% of what it normally is. A big reason for that uh, is ridership through San Francisco Airport, uh, which is down over 80% year over year uh, for domestic and, and well over 90% for international. So again, if we don't have people riding, uh, traveling by plane to San Francisco, that is gonna put a severe crimp into um, the market for our hotel and also that visitor spending that supports so many other industries from transportation to retail to restaurants. Um, and again, many of these are low wage industries and this shutdown of tourism essentially and very weak recovery of tourism is helping to um, contribute to the difficulty that many low wage workers are facing and also uh, small businesses as well. Next slide, please. Uh, and finally, I think the last point that I would mention and uh, we're tracking this very carefully and I'm not sure what, 
what's under underneath these numbers, but I think they're quite significant, uh, is the housing market in San Francisco. And this is data from apartment list, which tracks uh, apartment listings in the city. San Francisco has seen the biggest drop of any big city in the country in terms of its asking rents. You can see the drop is actually accelerating from month to month, even as the jobs start to slowly recover, the rents are not. Um, I think it's an open question. I'm trying to get the answer um, as best I can as to whether or not this is tech folks who can work at home deciding they no longer need to move to San Francisco or want to move away from San Francisco or how much this is caused by low wage workers who are laid off and can't afford to live in the city. Um, this is not our data. This is data we're getting from a third party source, but I've asked them to see if they could slice it by income so we could figure out more about what is actually going on there. I suspect it's a little bit of both, uh, but, it, but it is uh, a worrying trend, um, particularly because it's so much more dramatic than it is for other cities. And just lastly, I'm gonna kind of summarize with what I think are three big challenges for the city going forward, um, uh, going through and, and out of this recession. I would just say that the, um, if you can go to the next slide, please. I would just say that from the big picture point of view, the, the economic forecasters have generally been consistent for the past six or seven months. This is a deep recession. Uh, people are not expecting it to end until the, the end of next year in the sense that uh, this country's GDP won't be back to where it was till the late 2021, early 2022. It may take longer than that a year or so for employment to recover. Um, the best case scenario, I think, is continuing um, control over the virus, and that will allow things to gradually recover. But it is an unprecedented time uh, and an unprecedented recession, at least for 100 years, because it has this public health dimension to it, as well as being a severe recession. So we don't just have mass layoffs and consumers worried about spending money. Um, we also have, you know, lingering spread of the virus and we still have an avoidance of travel and of large groups uh, by many people. And of course, the industries that rely on travel in large groups are going to hit hardest by that. I think for San Francisco in the short term, and I say short term mainly because I think the pain facing these groups is the most acute at the moment, um, is the low income workers who have been forced to bear several months of shutdown and now with the fourth stimulus bill not happening and the supplemental unemployment insurance expiring, they're now facing um, less income support than they had been expecting and frankly, less than what economists think is required. Um, and I would also put in this category, many low margin small businesses, uh, larger businesses or chain businesses may be able to handle going into hibernation for many small businesses their small business is their job and it's just as difficult to be uh, without um, business receipts as it is for workers to be without uh, without income during this time. I think in the medium term when the virus we can talk about it being abated, abated and people um, being more open and willing to travel um, the severe tourism of uh, contraction of the tourism industry is, is going to be the critical thing for the city to get right. Um, it's, it's the primary source of job loss we had now. It's a major revenue loss to the city. Uh, we don't have any reason to think that San Francisco won't be an attractive tourist destination and gateway to Northern California and all the rest when it's 
uh, people are, are safe and able to and willing to travel again, but getting to that time is going to be very important. I think for the longer term issue, and I think the one where there's the greatest uncertainty, is what is the future of the people who are now working at home? We, we know that they haven't, they're, they're kind of bearing the least of the burden of the shutdown, um, but they, they um, have a great role to say in what the future of the city's economy is. Because if it really is true, as many people are saying, that there's less of a role for being in downtown San Francisco and businesses are able to work remotely or workers are able to, to work remotely indefinitely, that's got implications um, for the future of downtown, for housing, for real estate. Um, and so we're gonna be watching that very carefully. I think before we get to that point or part of that point is a transit ridership is a, a very vital thing for our economy to recover. We can't really get everyone back to work if they drive to work. We're not built that way as a city. We need people to take transit and it really is an impediment to uh, to full uh, employment. So that's another thing that, that's gonna need to be brought back before we can get to full employment. Uh, so those are my comments um, on where we currently are in the economy. And of course, I'll be hanging around and happy to answer any questions at the end of the other presentations. Thank you, Ted. Um, I'll jump in here. So I'm Heather Green, um, Director of Capital Planning and Deputy Resilience Officer, and I've also been staffing the Economic Recovery Task Force since its inception back in April. Um, and I'll be offering a little perspective about what that body has been up to and some of the ideas there. Um, next slide. And the next, so context ahead. Debbie already told you who's leading the task force. Those four there co-created by the mayor and board president. Um, I'll just note that we have a membership of over a hundred diverse community members. So a combination of some of the large employers like Mara works with, and then also a ton of small business owners, community leaders and representatives, and a very diverse body, as well as um, city executives and um, a handful of supervisors as well. Next slide. Um, a little bit of context, I won't belabor this here, but this is the kind of information that we have um, worked with and through as a task force. This is our hospitalizations data as a city. So you can see really we're, we're riding a bit of a roller coaster here. As Ted was talking, you know, we have this incremental job regain since the plummet in April. Um, but the, the disease itself is not linear. We're seeing recurrence. Um, the red lines there are the gap between um, when the city chose to close back down over the summer and when the state would have told us to do so. So you can see that, um, and even with that um, being ahead of the ball, we saw cases climb um, to the peak that they did over the summer. And so, you know, we are having to be extremely responsive and the task force has sought to um, offer guidance and, um, you know, express challenges and needs in real time. Uh, meanwhile, next slide. We have been trying to pay attention to whom is most, uh, to the populations most um, dramatically affected. Ted was, and I have one of Ted's slides up next. I like it so much. Um, but I, um, you know, we have spent a lot of time as a body thinking about who's vulnerable to the effects of the disease and also its economic repercussions, paying attention to where the cases are, who's being um, exposed, and what trickle effects that has on our economy as we are so densely packed as a city, um, you know, really until we are all 
in a good place, the virus has potential to spike back. Next. And this one you just saw, but I'll put it in a different frame, which is to say Ted shared this slide with us um, over the summer. And you know, this kind of perspective has been very important for the task force, just as we are paying attention to demography and geography, we need to pay attention to which sectors need the most help and which populations, again, noticing that, as he said, our low income earners have seen the, the largest hits when it comes to their jobs. Um, you know, as a city that you can imagine the value statements that go along with that. Um, and so, you know, we want to make sure that we are paying attention to the people most in need. Next. I'll kick over now to the, to the task force itself and all of that information was um, information we looked at in the task force. Next. This was the task force's charge. So it's a guiding body um, to help the city sustain and revive local business and employment, mitigate hardship for those most vulnerable and build a resilient and equitable future. Next slide. And um, this is high level on the process. So um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, with the task force trying to be responsive and um, have the work matter <laughs> um, in real time with this challenge that we've, you know, we've never really confronted anything quite like this. Uh, so you can see up uh, when we set out, um, you know, to be a task force body, you convene, you gather recommendations, you put them together in our report. Um, but there was um, a very clear directive from task force members in early sessions. We did a crop of meetings, small group meetings with 10 task force members apiece to hear their challenges, needs, and so on. And they expressed very clearly that the most imperative thing that the task force could do in the short term would be to facilitate safe reopening and help the city to do that as um, well and quickly as possible. So the task force actually and staff dug in on that in May and June, and you continue to see um, that work as new, um, new guidance is released and new rules. I mean, it's an ever-changing regulatory environment, you know, new rules, new tiers, new colors from the state. Um, and we are trying to follow along with our hospitalization tracking and exposure and all the other metrics that we need to watch for the public health of our city. So that, that was a piece of it. And then, you know, in June, we got going on thinking about our, um, about our strategies as a task force to recommend to the city in time for our end date now coming up on October 8th. Um, so we did a bunch of work groups as I'll talk about in a second in June and July, and then um, have been drafting the report that Debbie referred to um, August and September. The task force um, you know, set out, I just wanna highlight that they, they um, articulated that they wanted to deliver concrete and actionable recommendations to the city. And there were also aspirations for you know, long-term ideas. Um, certainly some of what the task force has put forward, as you'll see in a second, would take some time to implement. But I'd say a place we did not get as a body um, is still long-term visioning for the city. Um, some of the, maybe potentially, and commissioners, I don't know you personally, but um, perhaps some of the um, you know, real future of San Francisco type rhetoric that, um, that this body might be interested in. Um, I don't think that's a failing of the task force by any stretch. Um, that really speaks to me to the amount of work and ideas and thinking that's needed in the short and medium term. Um, but there is still work ahead, I think, on that long-term visioning. And, and so this is by no means the last, the last remark on our recovery. It's really just an opening salvo. Next slide. 
Um, this is, next two slides are about the community engagement and listening that um, the task force staff has conducted. So there has been a ton of outreach. You can see it's continuing. Here I am. Um, and on the next slide, um, some sentiments that we gathered from um, our public survey, which gathered over a thousand responses in the spring and early summer, and also some of these focus groups. And um, you know, it's important to amp we, we believe as a staff and as a task force and its leadership, it's important to amplify the voices that we hear through engagement like this, so that we remember that it is important to be culturally competent and deliver things in language to lead with safety and health for all. Um, to make sure we are thinking about accessibility concerns, remembering that people are really, some populations are suffering in some extraordinary ways, whether it's anti-Asian violence, um, immigrants who are not eligible for all of the benefits that um, native-born citizens are, uh, and, and thinking about, again, our, our disability community. And then, you know, we have heard a lot from our small businesses, as Ted was saying, you know, it's, it's extraordinary pressure on them and some of the adversity that they are facing um, and the investments that we need to make in order to, to save them. Next. The task force itself worked in four policy groups, um, thinking about jobs and businesses, our vulnerable populations, economic development, and then arts, culture, hospitality, and entertainment with the acronym AIC. Um, that last one you know, speaks to the, the data slide from Ted that I like so much. And that, that that set of sectors is really suffering in an extraordinary way and making sure that we pay attention to the needs that they have. Um, and the others kind of line up with the mission of the task force itself. What's bolded and underlined here are some of the things that we heard in common across them. So um, next slide, oh, sorry, before you advance, I'll just say things like uh, supporting businesses, um, affordable housing, thinking about our workforce, uh, thinking about safety. You know, these, these don't, things don't live in, in colored bubble silos. So we heard them multiple times. And so next slide, thank you, Katie. Um, you know, we were thinking, we've been thinking as, as staff and now shared with the task force on how the report is shaping up about integrated priority areas so that we don't have redundancy just to adhere to the structure of the, the work groups um, walls themselves. And you can see here the priority areas, but I'll be going through them each one by one with the strategies associated um, in a second, so you don't have to commit those to memory, but up first, next. Our um, strategies around supporting existing businesses and organizations, making sure that um, small business can survive, as I mentioned before, um, acknowledging our need to communicate clearly and concisely so that um, businesses know the options available to them. I'm thinking about how to stimulate um, economic recovery. You know, we hear a lot of clamoring in our group anyway, you know, though it's important to get the virus under control, of course, in order for the economic recovery to be sustainable, um, like these businesses are in danger of going under now. And so whether that's a, a short-term or a medium-term strategy of getting people back into public spaces to be able to spend money at neighborhood businesses, um, you know, we need, we need to keep keep our foot on the gas as much as safety and health will allow, which is a delicate balance. And then here at the bottom, um, probably an important one for this group is just you know, acknowledging the need to invest in our infrastructure to um, stimulate the local economy. But then because San Francisco has such good rules on the books and ever better, um, that should advance our, our environmental priorities as well. Next slide. Um, thinking about our workers, you know, we got, a, these are a handful of strategies about our workforce, our workforce development, making sure that we have 
um, a clear pathway for people and strong career uh, ladders at the end of whatever training they get, subsidized employment, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, at the backbone of that, making sure that people can actually go to work, especially families with a child care system that's, that actually meets the needs of our workforce. Next. Um, protecting and meeting basic needs for vulnerable populations. So in here, you have a couple of strategies, the, the first and the fourth, especially that, you know, focus on um, the health and well-being of all and um, especially in low-income communities and communities of color. You, you know, if you look on the CDC website, for example, like those who are um, pegged as high risk for this disease or it's a limited slate of like elderly and those with pre-existing conditions, the Department of Public Health in San Francisco acknowledges, you know, a far greater swath of vulnerability, um, both by um, demography and um, living conditions, like density of living situation and um, multi- um, multi-person households. So um, things like that, making sure that we have trusted community members who can deliver messages that people will trust and um, help deliver the, the equipment and protection that people need and that their health, their, their work environments are safe um, and a number of other just kind of basic, basic needs when it comes to um, health and well-being. Next. Um, it's, a, it's a San Francisco document, so we're going to talk about housing. Um, you know, it's, it's, Ted had the slide about our plummeting rents. I mean, affordability has been such a challenge for the city. It will be really interesting to see what comes back from that data poll, if they can give you it, Ted, with the slice by income. Um, you know, on the one hand, more cheaper rent is, is a positive for some, but not if it's falling only to those who are over, overpaying with income to spare before. Um, so there, there are a lot of strategies here that really um, are in the spirit of what San Francisco has been endeavoring to do for some time now, which is to make more affordable housing and prevent um, evictions and displacement. But obviously now there's a greater reason, greater urgency, and um, even more reason to pay attention to those things. Also some zoning changes about supporting construction, the support construction of small multifamily buildings would be to encourage density in um, areas of the city where there is not so much of it, specifically on the corner lots for fourplexes, um, impact fee deferral, and also streamlining in the entitlement process to make it more um, faster. <laughs> Next. Um, pursuing economic justice is another of our pillars. So these are our, this is a range of investments, um, both in particular communities that have been historically underinvested in, um, I'm sure you're all familiar with the, the current budgets, $120 million over two years to uh, make reparative investments in our black communities. Um, you know, thinking about our fines and fees and making sure that the city does not push people or keep people in a cycle of poverty uh, because of the financial burden of fees we assess. Uh, and then four through six are about the digital divide, um, various aspects of that. And then seeking again, like the extraordinary needs of the arts, culture, hospitality, and entertainment sector, um, trying to identify new revenue sources and support grants for them so that again they can survive. And lastly, um, reimagining spaces and the rules that govern them. So, you know, this is this disease, um, this disaster is kind of extraordinary in in the way that it is forcing us to think about the limits of our space and um, consider outdoor space and uh so you know there's there's uh strategies in here about making sure that we make the most of what we've got 
outdoors and indoors. Um, and you know, things successes like the shared spaces program, making sure that they don't expire before their time um, and cutting through red tape for rules that restrict uses that we need to make more easy to deliver. Um, and then lastly on this slide, you know, planning, continuing to plan collaboratively for San Francisco's resilient future and related investments. So um, as I mentioned at the top, like this group didn't didn't come to an articulation of that future, um, but we acknowledge the many, many planning efforts that are going on um, in my office. There's the capital plan, and we just recently published the hazards and climate resilience plan, which I think came to this body, um, obviously at, at environment with our climate action plan, the general plans, uh, housing element is up. There, there are just so many efforts going on at the same time. And so making sure that we work together as a city to think about um, how we can deliver best for the future San Francisco we all want to live in. Next. And this just shows kind of where we're at. We had drafted the report and that's been circulated to task force members now for, for comment. And um, this week's staff is starting to incorporate those recommendations and we plan to share them on October 8th as a final report, I hope, <laughs> if all goes well. And I think that is my last. And I'll be here for questions at the end. Thank you. Hi, good evening. Uh, can you hear me okay, Katie? All right, great. Well, thank you. My name is Maura McKnight, um, and I'm the executive director of the Business Council on Climate Change. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much, Heather, for that presentation and Ted. Um, and for all the great work you are both doing. Um, and it's really an honor to be here today in such good company along with the commissioners and the staff from the Department of Environment. Um, I think everyone on this call uh, is, is doing the very hard work right now of, of leading on the environment. Um, and I think our world needs strong leadership right now at this moment in time more than ever. Um, I think as cities across the globe are grappling with the same things that we're dealing with in San Francisco, you know, all these multiple crises converging in addition to very real impacts of climate change in real time on top of it all. Um, many cities globally are, are taking steps to, to do, put together plans for bold recoveries that prioritize urgent climate goals while building stronger and more resilient equitable economies. And I think that's a lot about what this conversation has already been about today. Um, in June of this year, the Business Council on Climate Change launched what we're calling a Climate Smart Recovery Initiative with our members. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, but I'm also going to start by giving you a quick intro to our organization and some of the things that our members are doing to lead on climate in their own companies, just so you have some context before I dive into the Climate Smart Recovery Initiative. Um, and I also want to say, you know, I think it's absolutely, it's, I've been talking to Debbie recently about this as well. Um, you know, it's great that the Economic Recovery Task Force is focusing so much on a safe opening and to get that happening as soon as possible. Um, it, it's clear to me at this moment in time that, that you know, when's the right time for that big picture visioning, right? And I think I'm, I'm eager to do it like so many of us. And I, it's been clear just listening from all of you that you know, the time to focus right now is on getting our city safely reopened and getting these low income workers back to work as soon as possible. Um, and so I maybe some of what I'll talk about today is like some next steps or opportunities for that longer term visioning when the time is right. 
Um, and so, as Heather said, this is this is just the opening, right? The Economic Recovery Task Force is an opening, um, and there's a lot of steps that are going to come after that. Um, so, next slide, please. So, a little bit about our organization. Many of you, you know, I, did, I was invited to come uh, give a quick talk when I came on board a couple years ago in, in 2018. Seems like a very long time ago now. Um, but a quick recap. <laughs> um, the Business Council on Climate Change was actually founded in, in 2007, um, actually as an incubated project of the Department of the Environment. Um, when the city put together their very first climate action plan, they knew that they couldn't do it alone. They needed the large corporations and entities at the table with them looking at the future, right? Again, long-term planning, bold goals, it takes everyone at the table. Um, so we are now a standalone nonprofit organization, and we and the, the Department of the Environment is actually a member of our organization and has been very supportive over the years. Um, our members listed here um, are a major economic engine for the region. Collectively, they employ more than 750,000 people. Um, the representatives within our membership that come to the table with us and come to our meetings and engage across companies and across sectors are mainly the lead sustainability people at their organizations. So they're the ones that are setting their global climate goals um, for their organizations, and they're also the ones that need to figure out how to meet those goals. So very similar to the Department of the Environment and the work that they do. Um, so our team at BC3 is also kind of a small and mighty team of three, um, and our work and how we operate is, is we regularly convene our membership um, to find opportunities for these companies and organizations to work across companies and to work across sectors. The goal is that we want to try and incubate and share ideas that have the potential to really address climate change. Um, so that's that's our main mission. Uh, next slide. So just two, you know, concrete examples of some of that collective action that we do with our membership. Um, in 2019, a few of our members came together uh, around a solar project and they joined forces to purchase renewable energy together um, in, a, in the same, uh, what's called a virtual power purchase agreement. It's a solar, technical solar term, um, but it's the first time that multiple companies of, of moderate sizes had come together on a large deal together. Um, and they all signed the same contract. Their lawyers all worked together. They learned a ton together. It was a really heavy lift, um, but they purchased 42 megawatts of a solar farm together collectively and in doing so, created a blueprint for how other companies of multiple sizes could join forces um, and make a bigger impact and offset their footprints, but also get more energy, clean energy out onto the grid. So that was one example of collective leadership. Um, and another example uh, was here as well. A few companies came together to create a pilot grant, um, basically some seed funding for the Marin Carbon Project. And they were testing out carbon sequestration on, on Marin rangelands um, to see uh, you know, to do some measurements. And I think ultimately the goal is over time that there might be maybe a local carbon market for soil sequestration. And there's a number of people in the space that are trying to make that happen, but it's very early stages and it's a little early days and messy. So our members got together to fund some of the research and they're trying to send a market signal that, hey, if, if the market can figure this out, we will buy those credits, right? We have funds and carbon budgets to buy those credits locally. Um, so we are still tracking that market. Our members are still very interested in that question and the opportunity for local carbon sequestration um, credits in a marketplace. Um, next slide. So many of our member companies um, have set ambitious uh, climate goals. You know, um, 
many of you were probably here and engaged in the Global Climate Action Summit that happened in 2018. You know, that was really a time to like kick up the ambition. And, and like, if you've already set a big goal, well, guess what? Jerry Brown was trying to tell everyone your goal wasn't big enough, right? And so um, props to Debbie and her team and everyone for hosting a number of great events during that Climate Action Summit. But it really did, I think, from my perspective, help to elevate the ambition. I think it's a really great example, right, of saying like, we don't know how we're going to do it, but we need to have it be the goals need to be bigger. They need to be more ambitious. And so that coming together did get a lot of our companies that are part of our membership that already had what they felt were strong goals. They had felt peer pressure to show up to the table with something bigger. Um, so many of the companies that are part of our, our membership have set either a carbon neutral goal or a net zero emissions goal, um, aligning with the city of San Francisco's goals to, to get to net zero emissions by 2050. So many of our members are already doing this. A lot of them are talking about and trying to, to find strategies to deal with their legacy emissions. So looking backwards, um, how can they offset the total emissions they've ever had since their founding? So some of them are doing big, big efforts on that front. Um, and a lot of them are looking at investments in carbon removal. So a handful of our companies have already instituted internal carbon pricing mechanisms so they can help to regulate um, the emissions from different business departments within their company but also they're charging those to business departments, right? And so all of a sudden those sustainability leads have a budget to play with, right? Um, which is actually really interesting. Um, and if you're talking about a big company like Google or a big company like Microsoft who owns LinkedIn, like that carbon budget that comes from doing your internal carbon pricing is actually a substantial amount of money potentially, right? Um, so a lot of those companies are starting to look at, well, what could we invest in with these funds that we're generating from our internal carbon pricing. So there's a lot of new creativity happening like at this moment in time around um, investments in carbon removal. Um, two examples there around investments in carbon removal. Um, Google just announced last week that they're gonna be investing $5.7 billion in sustainability bonds as part of their new third, you know, third decade of climate action. Um, and Microsoft and LinkedIn also announced a $1 billion um, climate innovation fund. And so they're looking at investing in emerging technologies and, and other solutions to sequester carbon. Um, next slide. This to me is the most interesting slide in my personal opinion. We need moonshots right now. We all need moonshots. And I, it, you know, there aren't that many examples right now in the corporate space. Um, there are a few, which is inspiring and exciting. And I'm, you know, it's not on this slide, but for example, Intuit made a huge announcement many months ago about trying to 50 times their footprint over the next 30 years. So some companies are coming forward and making these gigantic commitments that they don't know how they're gonna meet, but they're coming forward and making public commitments around it, which I think is really exciting. Um, two examples of what I think are moonshots within our membership. Um, these two companies have set 2030 goals, which is less than 10 years from now. So in less than 10 years, Google, they just announced it again last week. They're trying to get to operating on 20, what they're calling 24-7 carbon-free energy um, by 2030. Um, and if you don't know what that means, and I barely do, I couldn't tell you right now what that means. You should Google it. Um, it sounds funny. I always say to Google something that Google is doing, but you should Google this term. Google 24-7 carbon-free energy because you will it will pop up a green biz article on what this actually means and how hard it will be for, for Google to get there. And if they figure it out in you know 10 years, it's gonna be a game changer for states, companies, utilities. So 
that is super exciting to me. And Google has no idea how they're going to, I mean, they have a roadmap and ideas, right? But like, they're going to problem solve it over the next decade, right? So this is a huge moonshot that will actually be um, really potentially transformative in the space. Um, and then the other moonshot that I wanted to highlight is um, LinkedIn and Microsoft are, are going carbon negative, right? So everyone's talking about carbon neutral, right? Which is getting to zero. Um, LinkedIn and, um, is, a, is a company of Microsoft now. And so Microsoft has committed to going carbon negative um, by 2030, um, which means they're gonna deal with all their legacy emissions. And again, all those investments in emerging technologies and carbon sequestration technologies, they're gonna be spending that billion dollars um, and trying to get the markets going. Right, and so these are moonshots that I'll be really excited to watch over time. And within our membership, we have these members sharing with each other, right? Like, what can they learn from each other around this? Um, they have conversations a lot around things like carbon pricing and troubleshooting together about how to make it most effective. So members that are just launching carbon pricing schemes right now within their organizations can talk to Microsoft and learn how to skip over the first five years of pain there, right? And get to the, the juicy part because there's no more time to work independently in silos as companies anymore. Um, next slide. So, you know, I think kind of speaking of the moonshots, you know, we've talked about it on this, this meeting today earlier, like now's the time for the moonshots, right? And now's the time for bold action. Um, everyone here has experienced what we've just been through. You know, and my hope is that that day that the sun didn't really fully come out is a turning point. You know, I, I, my sincere hope is that here locally, we have support from the masses, but across the globe, there is support from the masses to be bold, to start saying we're going to do things that we don't know how to do, and then working together to get there. Um, and that's kind of leads into to our initiative that we just launched, um, our Climate Smart Recovery Initiative. Um, so next slide. I don't think I need to tell you all, but as a reminder, everything about the way we live and work is now different. Planes are grounded still, right? Like the percentage of people taking air flights, these companies that had multi-billion dollar travel budgets, and not billions, sorry, multi-million dollar travel budgets, right? Those budgets are not being used for airline travel anymore, right? So, and, and these companies are actually thinking like, CEOs are saying things like, find a way in recovery to not get to, to kind of keep our air travel at 60% right? Or at 50%, they're challenging their teams to plan now for when would they get into recovery, how they keep both those emissions low, but also keep those costs low. So a lot of interesting conversations are happening internally at these companies right now. Um, and again, the work from home piece and, and what a big impact that has on emissions, um, but also on the future of cities, um, as, as Ted was pointing out. Um, next slide. Um, and we're seeing a wave of demonstrations calling for racial justice. Um, and it's all happening at once, right? What a moment we're living in. Um, from my seat and the conversations I've been having with corporate leaders, it's really interesting. It's really interesting that the words systemic change, racial justice, um, intersectionality, I mean, I hear these words every single week now. Like everyone is grappling with the interconnectedness of it all and the people that used to just sit in their silo of sustainability at a corporation are now being asked like what is your team on the climate team doing around racial equity and they're trying to figure it out and they have to go meet with their peers on you know the diversity team and have those conversations and start to build the network and the webs within their companies to answer those questions and they're coming up with new 
ideas and proposals because of that, and those conversations are happening at that level. Um, but I think what we know as humans is that systemic change is super complex. It's really hard. I keep joking with our membership is like, don't try this at home by yourself. Like, right? Like, it, you need partners when you're starting to think about systemic change. You cannot do it alone. Um, next slide. So this kind of gets into like, you know, what is that future we re-envision? And we did this exercise when we launched this initiative with our members and we, we just had them all think for a couple minutes about what comes to mind when, I, when we say the words green recovery, right? And they just shared openly and, and popcorned words and, and we created this word map out of it. It was really interesting, right? What people were sharing, you know, about this is an opportunity to rethink. Like we are in this pause. We can't just start planning the way we've always planned. You know, we have to do everything differently. Um, it was really interesting to hear what was coming out of the mouths of these folks, basically saying, we need to be bold. There's, this is the great resizing, right? Um, and we need to build in a more equitable manner, right? So ultimately with our Climate Smart Recovery Initiative, our membership and the practitioners within our membership really believe that an economic recovery that moves us toward our broader climate goals will simultaneously create jobs and build a more resilient local economy. In addition, it's gonna improve the health and quality of life for all residents. Um, so that's, that's our belief. Um, and it's one of the core things that, that, that we're holding as we move forward with our Climate Smart Recovery Initiative. Um, and so, I mean, I think the real question is like, what's, what's that future we're, we're re-envisioning and, and, and are we ready to start the process of designing it? Um, you know, I think before the next big disaster, right? Like it's not a great time right now. And when you're in the middle of the disaster and the trauma, people just need to get back to the, the, it's the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? They just need to get, get back to that place, you know? And so, I mean, I think the space between this disaster and the next one, because there will be a next one, there's gonna be another bookend, there's gonna be another, right? There, there's gonna be a magic space in between two disasters where we have the ability to do the long-term envisioning and, and the planning together. Um, so I think that that's, that's why starting these conversations now as we start to get our feet back on the ground. Now is the time in between this and the next disaster. Um, next slide. I think the good news here, and I just wanna say like props to C40 cities because like early on this year, they came out with their principles for a COVID-19 recovery and tons of, of mayors across the globe signed on to this. And I'm really proud of Mayor Breed and excited that she signed on to these principles early on. Um, I think it's a, it shows her, her courage to be part of this, this movement as it moves forward. And this is a quote from the C40 pr principles when they release them, but climate action can help accelerate economic recovery and enhance social equity, right? Through new technologies, new industries, new jobs. These are gonna drive wider benefits for everyone, right? Um, I think the good news with C40 as well, in addition, they followed up to this principles work with a full agenda on, on green recovery. So there's now a C40 kind of report that's public um, that has some recommendations. Uh, and, and I've been really inspired going through that. Um, and I think the point I'm trying to make here is that there are blueprints <laughs> out there already. We don't have to re, you know, 
rebuild the wheel here. Um, also, Rocky Mountain Institute is doing great work on, on this too, and envisioning and recommending steps that cities can take um, around the rebuilding process. Um, so next slide. In terms of BC3's Climate Smart Recovery Initiative, um, to date, you know, we, we really launched this, um, I always say there's two tracks to it. The first track is really showing up for our members right now because they're in crisis like everyone's in crisis, right? So in, in their own worlds, they already had big jobs to achieve these ambitious and bold climate goals that no one's ever done before. And they were struggling in their own silos. And so our work to convene them helps them um, meet their climate goals. Well, now they have that plus, you know, their kids at home learning and, and these added pressures of figuring out the intersectionality and the systemic change pieces. So the big first um, track for our initiative is to bring our members together so that they can help each other navigate these times, share best practices, share tools for their employees working at home, and that BC3 can help pull together resources um, for them. So that's a big part of, of what we're doing. Um, and then the second track, which, you know, honestly, we're just getting started on is also showing up for San Francisco. So that's the other big part of this initiative, right? How can our membership work collaboratively with the city, with the economic recovery task force and the recommendations that come out of that? Um, how can these companies be good citizens and good partners in the recovery process? Um, you know, and, and that's what I want to talk a little bit about um, at the end here. Um, but to date, in terms of our recovery initiative, we've hosted three member forums, um, one around a risk-informed return to the workplace. Um, we have held a forum on zero waste and COVID um, and how it's impacting these companies' bold zero waste goals. Um, there are tons of questions, as you all are aware, probably about the safety of durables. So we had a big discussion with facility folks from our member companies around that. We pulled together a lot of resources from um, both SFE and also the member companies themselves so that folks could have the, the tools they needed to make the case internally um, to stick to some of their zero waste goals as they're riding these waves. Um, and then we also had a recent um, forum with Ted Egan. Thanks, Ted, so much for, for participating, where he gave a presentation to our members as well so that they could see what you guys saw today about the state of the recovery and those, that are, those vulnerable folks that are most impacted right now. Um, in addition to these forums, we've signed on as BC3 to a letter of support for a Bay Bridge recovery pathway feasibility study um, to basically evaluate creating um, a temporary emergency bike lane on the Bay Bridge. So we're kind of engaging in some ways to, to support some studies being done to look at creative ways to get people back to work not in cars. Um, and then at BC3, we also have a pretty strong employee engagement platform. Um, we actually launched it in January of this year, fortuitously, um, right before everyone went home to work forever <laughs> for the short term. Um, and so we have a way and a tool and a manager that's running an employee engagement platform with our members um, to help reach these 700,000 employees out there that are working from home. Um, and we are now in the middle of our SunShares campaign and working to get that out to our em the employees of our member companies. Um, the SunShares campaign encourages adoption of residential solar and batteries. Um, so that is just opened up and it's open to anyone in the Bay Area. And we also are testing out a campaign this year to encourage opting up to clean energy across our members to get the word out to their employees um, to encourage them to opt up to clean energy right now um, as another additional step that they can take, maybe hopefully to offset their energy use at home while they're working from home. Um, so we're also trying to find ways to help these companies look at 
can they, while people are at home right now in this interim moment, can they also in, encourage green behaviors at home? So we're trying to bring our members together to look at employee green incentives beyond the ones I just mentioned. Could the companies actually do creative things like take their health and wellness benefits because people aren't going to the gym too much and say, you could use that $500 this year to go towards a, a battery for your home or a solar system or an air purifier, right? So we're looking at trying to have them do some easy lift things in the short term that can make a difference for their employees, but also for our grid here locally. Um, so those are some of the things that we're working on. And then in general, we've had the membership, we have come together to kind of agree to these three commitments really with our Climate Smart Recovery Initiative. So the companies um, are committing to do these three key things in the short term. Um, they're gonna continue to pursue aggressive climate and sustainability goals in their businesses and workplaces and commit to share successful strategies with the broader business community. So BC3 will, will, can be part of that convening to share out as much as we can with businesses of all sizes, um, what's working. Um, we also commit to collaborating with the Economic Recovery Task Force and identify climate smart recovery opportunities and share expertise when the time is right, um, to Heather's point, right? So when the time is right, um, we would invite any and all ideas of ways to bring these businesses to the table. Um, and then finally, commit, our members are committing to work closely with the city to address both the impact and the opportunity um, of this changing workplace, right? To Ted's point, it's like, there are gonna be economic impacts, but also huge emissions impacts of all of these decisions these companies make over the next six to 12 to 24 months, right? Um, how many people go back to work is gonna affect the transportation needs of the city, um, workforce shifts and, and the impacts on the local economy and infrastructure. So our members are very interested and concerned in the transportation issue, as I'm sure you all could imagine. Um, and you know they're also, curious and want to be part of the discussion around reimagining spaces like Heather talked about. Um, so I think there will be a lot of opportunities as we move forward um, to convene uh, our members, but also convene them with key city agencies when the time's right. Um, Debbie and I spoke recently, one of the things that I'm thinking on and Debbie suggested this might be a good place to, to intervene is, is once the, the recommendations are out from the task force, um, there's gonna be so much there, right? And that's just the opening, that's just the beginning step. Um, and there's probably gonna be an appendix of a ton of suggested projects or ideas. Um, and so that's gonna be something that, that I'm gonna work with my team to, to look deeply into that report and all the appendices and pull our membership together to say, are there a handful of these that you're more interested in than others? How can you contribute to this process? Um, maybe some of our member companies will adopt one or two of these ideas and find ways to provide support, whether it's financial or pro bono support, um, we can be creative. And I, I do think, like I said, a lot of these companies are really concerned about equity right now um, because of the demonstrations and we are in this moment in time. They are probably shifting their philanthropy strategies to align with equity, right? I, you know, I don't know enough about that and they're probably not all the way through that process right now, but there might be a way locally. So many of these companies are headquartered here in San Francisco. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting and creative conversations to have uh, as we move forward. So I think um, in addition, I'll just wrap up by saying, you know, we, we've, we've been in touch with Debbie. Thank you so much for your generous time, Debbie, in thinking through some of this. Um, and we're also in touch at BC3 with the, the Governor's Task Force on Recovery, and they have a subcommittee on climate as part of that recovery task force for the Governor's Office. So we're in touch with them too, just to look for opportunities to convene when the time is right. Um, but I think what I wanted to say in closing here is just that 
we're all ears, right? And, and if, if anyone, whether it's commissioners or city staff, think it would be helpful to convene with even just a couple companies to have small conversations about opportunities to, to collaborate, we can help with that. If you wanna have larger conversations where we invite the broader business community, um, BC3 would be happy to help um, convene and host that and use our staff time to do that. So um, we're all ears um, for any ideas. Uh, and um, next slide. Here's my contact information, um, and I just wanted to thank everyone for the important work you're getting to. Thank you all so much for that. That was really informative and fantastic. Every time I get to hear the smart folks in our public bodies and in our partners um, and the deep and thoughtful work that they're doing, I'm constantly proud to live in this city and to be a part of um, these organizations and these groups of people that are thinking about these important, important questions. I'm sure that the commissioners probably have some questions for all of our different um, presenters. Um, and I'm gonna take a look over at the hand raising list. If you have any questions for anyone, let's take advantage of the time that we have while they're here. Go ahead, Commissioner Sullivan. If I can <clears throat> unmute myself. Um, just a couple of observations. One is that um, I've been really pleasantly surprised at um, some of the changes that COVID has forced on us from a reimagining spaces perspective and especially how it relates to the environment. Um, I think the shared spaces um, uh, thing has been a, a big success. Uh, I, know, I know I find myself walking to my local uh, restaurants out of with their spaces out on the street more as opposed to driving other places um, and the and pretty close to where I live the um, there's a new bike lane along Oak Street um, next to the panhandle that happened with very little fanfare and very little process you know in, in the old days both of these things would have taken years of process and community meetings and they happened quickly I assume because of emergency powers but maybe we can learn a bit from that and maybe even make some of these things um, permanent be an idea and then the second second thought I had is, you know, we've all been reading about how, on a global level, emissions are down this year. You know, the, the absolutely obviously terrible what's happening to the country and to the world with the pandemic. But a little bit of a um, silver lining is that emissions are actually down. So I'm curious to know if the city can somehow calculate the um, kind of climate impact of of this pandemic on San Francisco. Um, uh, uh, to, to see how we're doing on a local level. So those are my thoughts. I have a couple questions, actually. Ted, I have a question for you. Um, do we, you know, anecdotally, if I look at people that I work with and people in my kids' public school, um, it feels like people who have the capacity and capability to work from home and leave the city are leaving the city, um, not everyone, but I'm seeing it. And obviously this is my very myopic little worldview in my you know, work from home world. Do we see that in a large scale or are we seeing a trend in that direction? And if so, um, how is that impacting how we're thinking about you know, that downtown space that you were talking about earlier? Uh, I mean, it's a great question. I think uh, the information that we're getting at this point largely is anecdotal. Um, 
there is a lot of concern though from cities like New York and San Francisco and some other expensive cities that you're seeing at least a temporary outflow. I'll give you another example that the housing market um, in the Bay Area is showing a great deal of strength in suburban locations and a lot of weakness within the city. And the brokers that I'm hearing from are saying things like people are looking uh, who would ordinarily have bought in the city are looking to buy in the suburbs. And certainly the marketing of real estate is tying, it is, is talking up the advantages of low density in ways that were uncommon in the past years. Um, whether or not this is real or worth focusing on, if a year from now we're going to be talking about everybody going back to the city and things going back to normal, I think is kind of an open question. I'm a little more worried. I'm not so worried about the people moving to the suburbs as I am about the people moving to, you know, um, Boulder, <laughs> because they're not going to come back, right? And um, uh, it's always been true that um, uh, companies and jobs and people have effectively been priced out of San Francisco and have moved to lower cost locations. But if we see that kind of um, supercharged because this moment in technology uh, and the virus and people's psychology is more likely leading them to do that, that may feel like a longer term shock to the city's economy. Um, the only piece of information that I think is sort of beyond anecdotal that we have at this point also comes from apartment list. And they are tracking people's searching of apartments, which they shows up on their website. And they're kind of suggesting that it, what we're seeing in San Francisco is more that no one is moving to San Francisco as opposed to everyone is moving out of San Francisco, at least from an apartment point of view. And that also makes sense because as recently as 2019, for example, tech industry employment in San Francisco grew by 10%. There were you know, thousands of people flowing into San Francisco as there are every year. If that flow stops, it's going to look like um, a big slowdown in the rental market. Um, but as I say, I think that's, you know, slightly better than anecdotal data, but I'm eager to learn more about exactly what is driving um, the shutdown. How much is in-migration versus out-migration? How much of it is upper income versus lower income? Um, because it, you certainly read a lot of stories about all the work from home people who are you know, cast off the shackles of living in San Francisco. But then a year or two ago, you were reading all about them, could choose to live anywhere and wanted to live in San Francisco. So again, I don't know how permanent that is. I frankly worry more about the low income workers because A, they've been hit hardest by the job loss and B, they had the high, much higher housing burden anyway. And I think C, they don't have the assets to draw on the savings and so forth to pay rent during an employment interruption. So all of those without actually having information on it, all of those factors make me worry a lot more about low income out my region. Mm -hmm. And so obviously I'm eagerly awaiting the real data. We just don't have it yet. Thank you. Debbie, I guess this question might be for you. Um, where is the department able to and inserting itself into these conversations? Yeah, it's a great question, um, President. And I, this is part of the reason I was really excited to bring this topic to all of you, because I want it to be um, a collective brainstorm on all of our parts, 
on the various ways we insert ourselves. So uh, the department is involved, I would say, in sort of two levels. One is in the work we do and making sure that our uh, that we are thinking about economic recovery in our work. So whether it's focusing our energy efficiency work and uh, a small grant program through zero waste to small businesses and focusing our energy laser on the small businesses that are hurt the most, um, supporting uh, the nail salons so that when they are ready to open and allowed to open, they are we, we make it even easier for them and safer for them to reopen. The other area that we are participating in is in the larger discussion area, and that falls to me mostly. So I was appointed to the Economic Recovery Task Force. I was one of the city executives that Heather talked about and was on working groups. And it's actually been a phenomenally useful uh, experience for me because I got to be on working groups with people who I would never interact with um, and others that I just didn't know that now I do know. So the president of the Small Business Commission and I were on a, were on a working group together and now we are working together. So there are, and, and Heather and I have had long talks about, and same with Assessor Chu and I, about how we, what's the right way to, okay, I just, Ted, you're, when you just did that, that was fascinating. Um, sorry, that was just, uh, we have had long discussions about the difference between the medium and short term that is happening now and the long range of, of how we insert the green. So what came out of it for me was what Heather was saying to all of you that it isn't a shortcoming of the Economic Recovery Task Force. It's a sign of what the members, those hundred members, where their heads are at. Uh, and so the question then becomes, how do we make sure that sustainability is part of the, those long range discussions? Where are those happening now? They're happening in a number of places and Heather listed them, the housing element of the general plan really an interesting moment for this commission to be thinking about how the, we don't do land use as a as a commission there's a bright line there and yet there's a big discussion in the housing element on resiliency and sustainability as well as affordability and um, and uh, types of housing and amount of housing so the department we are, our ears are open. We're looking for ways to insert and, and be part of the conversation. I would say honestly that I haven't found a good entry point yet. And so I wanted tonight to be with you sort of a launching of that. So my ask is that all of you commissioners think about ways that are in your purview to, to get this conversation and get these themes inside thinking. Now, they're already pointed out in the housing element, so it's not that we don't have to get them there, but we have to make sure that the adoption of resources reflects this priority, because ultimately that's what this is about, is where does the city put its resources, and how does it rebuild, and who does it invest in, and what are the jobs that we bring, and how do we re-envision public spaces um, so that they, so public spaces support sustainability, resiliency, equity, 
the three eats. And um, just to, to build off of that, um, because in a way, I mean, it is, it's a COVID specific task force and so on, but, but the problem, like the, the challenge or the question at the floor is, is an ongoing one, which is how best, how best to actually compel action. And Debbie and I talk about this sometimes. Um, and, you know, I think there's a couple of ways, but um, to me, like, you never get an argument in a San Francisco body about like that we should do what's good for the environment. So it's like such, you have such um, consensus in that way that um, perhaps it's understated, uh, but, but, but that doesn't mean that people disagree with the importance of the, the measure. I think to me, like far more powerful than any, um, you know, individual strategy or like the C40 sign on is a great example. Like it's a pledge. It's a pledge of like ambitious, desires, but um, the teeth comes in the local legislation. And so like all of the work that Debbie and team do and that you do here to um, set the rules about what San Francisco can build, like th that's the leverage. And so, and, and to be clear, you know, there's a lot of um, concern about how hard it is and how expensive it is to build in San Francisco and the, and, you know, in my capital planning hat, like this is something that we run up against all of the time. Like, of course you want to build um, the best greenest project that you can, but if it costs a lot more, and the good news is that it, it really seems like it isn't going to keep costing more. It might even pencil the same or offer savings over time. And so to the extent that, that you can, should, because day to day, there's always limited resources, certainly from the local level. Um, but if, but the rules are the rules. And so to the extent that the rules can, you know, still facilitate the building that we need to deliver now, especially for stimulus, um, that that building be green, it's going to get you so much further, I, I believe, than, um, you know, articulating the call for this or that project, which will always have, like, political battles about it. So I, I, I just want to hope to instill, um, I'm sure you already have it because it's so amazing, but, like, the confidence in, in Debbie's, you know, attention to the legislation that, that guides what we do um, is really helpful, I think, for our collective priorities here. Yeah, thank you. I um I've been I just came out of a big planning process for the company that I work for and we sat down and we did, you know, days of you know, looking at like what do we really want to do and there's there's an author who wrote a book called Built to Last Jim Collins and he has this concept of a big hairy audacious goal, right? Like and these companies come up with these like plans for like this big hairy audacious goal, the thing that's just impossible. It's kind of the moonshot thing, but it's it's the thing that's impossible and that's what you decide you're going to stake on the wall and you're going to work toward and you don't have enough money. You don't have enough people. You don't have enough anything to get there. You know that you don't have the resource, but it's out there. And then you have like the money that you have and the resource and the people for right now. And it's a both and kind of process of saying, this is what we can do. And we're going to do everything that we're supposed to be doing to do the right now always with that thing on the wall that we're working toward. And that's where I would hope that as we look at the sort of long-term planning for this, that we can say, this is a brave new world for good and bad. And, you know, the, the fact that Commissioner Sullivan made reference to sort of the ways that our communities are changing a little bit. And I'm, you know, I, I left town actually um, to see a sick relative and drove back and all of a sudden the city is covered in parklets. Right. And things that was it was formerly parking that we never would have been able to get rid of, quite honestly, 
But now all of a sudden it's outdoor dining and I feel like I'm in Europe and I, you know, I'm wandering around and looking at people having these experiences that have sort of changed the fabric of a piece of our city, like in, you know, across town. And, and I think that, I think that we can do both. Um, I think that we can say, you know, this is our big, big goal of how we want to transform our recovery that we want, that we want to build the city back better. And we can have that thing at the same time that we can commit to saying we have to help the people that need help today, right now, and we can do both those things. Um, and I'd hope that that my fellow commissioners that we can, you know, help to try to come up with what is that big thing that we tack on the board and say as a city, this is this is what the city looks like in ten more years, because that's what we have. We've got, you know, climate concerns that have to happen now. So, anyway, commissioners, any other thoughts or questions, Debbie? Thanks. Sorry, I saw Commissioner On had his hand up. I'll just, this is a question to Heather. So in terms of next steps, this the report, which I have read the draft of, which is really well-written and easy to follow and such a honest and wonderful reflection of all this great brainstorming and good work on these hundreds of people, has behind it just a whole list of suggestions, you know, where it just, I don't know, a hundred ideas. And it's, how do we make this report not stay on a shelf? I mean, that's my question. How do we, how do we pick things off or what will it take to take some of these ideas and make them real? That, that's the thing that worries me right now. Heather, you're, Heather, you're on mute. Sorry, hi. Um, a little bit, we'll look to leadership, um, right? Like the mayor and the board president convened this body. We expect they will both attend the closing. And I think it's reasonable to expect to hear some next steps. Um, you know, maybe not for, like, um, when I said that this, this report and this body is an opening, it's also important to note that it's not comprehensive. So so Ted shared the, the mobility data and the transit data with our group, but our group really didn't tackle transportation, for example. There was another group in the city that was working on transportation during response and will eventually, you know, the MTA is already thinking about recovery. We had, the, we had Jeff Tumlin present to us, but this, this body didn't really tackle that per se, even though exactly as Ted said, like downtown can't recover and our city as a whole cannot recover unless people are, are comfortable, safe, and frequently using transit. Um, so that's just one example. Likewise, on on for youth and families and, and the, the community hubs that you've probably read about. And like, there's a whole, we, we heard that information, but there is a whole um, effort there on homelessness, on essential government functions. Like there's just, there's a lot of groups. So I think it's important and Though I love, I love the report too. Um, it is. I think it's it's a piece of the pie, and I think it's really important that our city stakeholders, um, you know, pay attention in the months ahead and look to see how the mayor and our board weave together um, those various facets of recovery planning, of which this is one component, but there are so many, um, and to to see how to to look that that balls like that you know, don't get dropped. I don't expect that they would. Um, so that's that's one piece of it, you know, a little bit TBD on, on exactly which pieces get picked up as priority from that leadership perspective. 
Um, and then, you know, I think it happens often in government documents that things are acknowledged and incorporated by reference. And that that last bullet that I mentioned in a hurry, I was trying to hurry through, it still was way too long. Um, you know, the one where we acknowledge the various planning processes that exist, including the climate action plan, including our capital plan. Um, those are places where important decisions get made. And, and the legislation, again, I'll just say it again, like the legislation that goes along with them are so important. Um, for the public, the public space reuse, which I think is, you know, it's such a visible part of what we're doing, um, continuing to communicate with your electeds and, uh, and so on about, um, you know, how you like it and that it's a good idea um, that you may have seen the article about, um, you know, being able, like for a single commenter, like the CEQA problem where a single commenter can obstruct an entire project on slow streets. Like MTA has a whole second slate of slow streets that they want to open, but it's, it's held up. Um, and so, you know, keeping your eye on those, on those movements through the board and um, expressing your support for things that you want to see, I think remains, you know, it's, it's in some ways business as usual, but, um, you know, it's no less important business, um, those processes. And then, you know, for the part about articulating, not going back, like in the C40 goals, for example, it's like that we can't return to business as usual. We have to do better, right? I, I just think San Francisco is so far ahead on those kinds of things. Not that it's not an uphill battle, but like all of our documents already say that. And like all of our legislation already pushes us there. And like, that will be the work of the cap. And that will be, so I, I, I don't mean to diminish it, but it's like, you're doing you're doing the work. Um, and I don't know exactly what the future holds in terms of like how the mayor will articulate like our recovery path. Um, I know that the, the task force that I was staffing will be a part of it, um, but I wouldn't expect it to be the whole picture. And so, um, you know, it's a little bit of a wait and see how she, how she activates it. But I, I, I think it's really the work of the entire city going forward. So it really is like all city processes are going to be about this for the foreseeable future until we're where we want to be. Um, and yeah, demanding that vision is a totally reasonable thing to do. Um, you know, I think it's hard. We started from such a high peak, like the full employment peak with numbers. I mean, I don't know if you think we'll get back where we were. Like, those are historic low unemployment numbers. And so, you know, I think there's a justice component of what we pay attention to, like who's employment. I was just reading some things about that. So there's a lot of questions ahead. Thank you. Questions you're on, I know you had a question. I wanted to make sure that we got to you. Thanks. I just had a really precise question, actually, for Chief Economist Egan. Really appreciate you taking the time to present today. Uh, the question is, I've heard mention that a lot of the stories, for instance, are anecdotal. We're waiting on new data trends or data reports. Could you specify which groups or which data reports we're looking, we should look forward to for future follow-up? Um, specifically to the migration, um, you know, the 2000 census was going on at the start of the shutdown period. And that's a question where you ask people where you live now, or it's sent to your address and where we were living a year ago. So that will start to show some migration behavior. Uh, we're not going to get that data, I think, till the end of next year or early 2022. Another source of migration data that's sometimes a little bit more timely comes from the IRS. The IRS looks at 
the zip code from which you filed your taxes and the zip code you filed your taxes last year and creates county to county migration flows that way. Um, so to the extent that people were filing their taxes in July this year and had made movement decisions before then, we'll see some movement pick up there. But realistically, uh, the migration is still happening. At least that's what, that's what the housing data is telling us. And so we won't really know until next year's census and maybe next year's IRS inputs, which will lead to data a year or two after that. So I think from the, the point of view of official statistics, we're going to get um, a picture of this that gets clearer and clearer over the next few years. The things that will get more timely are things that kind of touch the city in ways that reflect population. So for example, when BART is safe to write again, how many people are writing BART? That is a pretty good measure of how many people are going to work in downtown San Francisco. In some ways, it's better than what EDD is telling us because they're just doing a survey, whereas BART is counting everyone. So we're going to need to be, I think, as I was saying before, creative about what we can do with anecdotal or unofficial high frequency data before the really good kind of gold standard official data comes in, because we'll be waiting for a year or two for that to tell the whole story. Thank you. Commissioner Wald. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to sort of tie together what Mara was saying about the, and you, uh, Chair Stevenson, about the sort of the big ambitious goals and what Heather was saying about the importance of San Francisco's um, legislative goals and, and fundamental um, rules that, that we have. And it seems to me that this might be an appropriate question, uh, an appropriate point in time uh, to question whether or not our goals, our environmental goals are in fact actually bold enough. Is this, in other words, a time in which we ought to uh, push forward um, some of our transit and other goals um, because we have because we have the opportunity, number one, uh, because we're doing this kind of planning, but also because uh, the consequences of pushing forward those, uh, goals, uh, in some cases, will be increased jobs, increased benefits, uh, helping people who need who need the help uh, the most. So, uh, I would encourage you, Debbie, to to at least spend a little while figuring out whether or not um, we really ought to say, you know, we. I, I, of course, cannot think at this moment of an appropriate example, but whether or not we want to have even bolder, even more ambitious goals that, that would help us move forward from, from this particular moment in time uh, to a future that um, is more in line with the one that I believe in and want to see. I'll second that. I like that. <laughs> Anyone else have any questions or comments on the commission? 
All right. I don't see any. Should we open up for public comment? I want to just thank you all, all the speakers. Those were wonderful presentations. I appreciate your diligence and attention to detail and willingness to wait till the end for us to ask all our questions. I'm sure we'll have more as time go, goes on. Um, but I think right now we should probably open up to public comment. Yes, so we can open it up for public comment regarding this agenda item. I'm going to put the instructions back up on the screen. That didn't work, did it? Let's try that again. <laughs> One second. Here we go. Okay, so the instructions are now up on the screen. If you would like to call in to make a public comment, please be sure to press star three to be added to the queue. And if you make a public comment, you will have three minutes. And please wait until it is your turn to speak. And give me one second while I check the queue. And I do see that we have one call in the queue. And so I will start our timer and I will unmute you now. Hi, this is Susan Karasoff from the California Native Plant Society. I'm a San Francisco resident. The United States faces multiple simultaneous threats, public health crisis, biodiversity crisis, and climate crisis exacerbated by our pandemic-related economic crisis. Unfortunately, we must address all of these crises at the same time to survive. Please include biodiversity in the discussion for how the climate business community and the city can build back better. Our public green spaces are some of the few places to get outside our homes during the pandemic. This pandemic has exposed how important our green spaces are to our mental health as well as our physical health. 68% of San Francisco is paved and built on. Every bit of green space and every plant we add matters. A budget-neutral way for San Francisco to enhance biodiversity would be for rec and parks, multiple nurseries to propagate local native plants and install those not only in our parks, but also in our other city-owned green spaces. Every plant the city installs should be 100% local native plant. Consider replacing some of our carbon-emitting golf courses with native plant communities, children's playgrounds, dog runs, athletic fields, bike trails, and running trails to offer a wider variety of ways to be outside for San Francisco residents. Thinking larger, such as permitting the wellness budgets at companies to invest in home solar and batteries is a wonderful idea. Would companies consider permitting some of this wellness budget for their employees to plant local native plants at their homes and local green spaces so that we can create green corridors for our pollinators and wildlife? Evidence links biodiversity to ecosystem services and human health to nature exposure as published by Sandifer in Ecosystem Services and by Cox and Gaston in PLOS One. Seeing a reduction in numbers and varieties of butterflies and birds here in San Francisco is evidence that we are losing the biodiversity that is the foundation of our health, our air quality, our water quality, and our food web. Please include biodiversity in our city and corporate plans to permit us to build back better together. That concludes my comments. Thank you for your comment. Okay, I'm seeing no additional callers in the queue. We will go ahead and close public comment for this item. All right, seeing no more public comment, that is now closed. Next item, please. 
The next item on our agenda is agenda item six, review and vote on whether to accept the policy committee's recommendation to approve resolution file 2020-03-COE, adopting the 2020 reduced risk pesticide list for city properties. Under the environment code, the department maintains a reduced risk pesticide list identifying those pesticides that may be used on city property subject to restrictions. The sponsor is Deborah Raphael, director, and the speaker is Dr. Chris Geiger, integrated pest management program manager. The explanatory documents are the staff memo, resolution file number 2020-03-COE, the 2020 reduced risk pesticide list, and public comment and responses memo. And this item is for discussion and action. Director Raphael, would you like to introduce it? Thank you, President Stevenson, yes. All right, switching gears, you know, pandemics, apocalyptic fires, recessions, these are things that are holding our attention right now in a riveting way, but the city's work goes on and the commission's work goes on. And the, every year the commission uh, brings, uh, addresses this issue of taking a look at the year in the past, at our use of pesticides and our use of non-chemical controls on those precious open spaces uh, to support biodiversity, to support uh, outdoor activity, uh, and to support our infrastructure. So the report that the committee looked at, that the policy committee looked at was for 2019 and ended at the end of 2019. But of course, everyone on the policy committee and all of us were very interested in how did COVID impact our pesticide use. So you will see those numbers more dramatically next year when we come back to you. But at this point, you will be hearing from Chris a summary of, a very quick summary uh, of what has happened in 2019 uh, because the policy committee heard a very detailed presentation about not only the numbers from 2019, but also what was happening uh, as opposed to COVID, what some of the challenges are, what some of the resilient uh, requirements were for our land managers. Um, and so with that, I will have Chris present his abbreviated version of the presentation he gave at policy committee, and then we will ask you to weigh in. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Debbie, and thank you, commissioners, and also thank you to the previous presenters. It, it really does make me feel deeply proud to be a, working for local government at this, this critical time. I, I'm going to abbreviate as much as I can. Uh, this is an annual, annual ritual, an annual uh, function that we do. Um, this uh, reduced risk pesticide list, I'm going to just give you the briefest of background on the mandates. I think you have all heard this before. Uh, we will discuss activities, as Debbie mentioned, through the present, not just through 2019, give you a brief summary of the, the trends in 2019, and then our recommendations. Um, integrated pest management is a decision-making process. It is one that uh, values non-chemical and non-disruptive techniques most highly and saves pesticides and disruptive techniques for the last resort. We like to live at the base of this pyramid uh, with emphasis on prevention. Uh, the ordinance itself, uh, as you may remember, requires an IPM approach in all city properties, puts these restrictions on pesticides, that is they have to be on this list in order to be used on city properties unless there is an exemption granted by our department. It requires 
uh, posting and record keeping requirements uh, requires compliance of contractors and also includes an annual public hearing requirement, which we had beginning of August. Um, and, and that is a chance for us to talk to members of the community about what city staff do in their landscape manage management and structural pest management activities, and also to hear about community concerns. Um, the very briefest of background, we do screen every pesticide that goes onto this list. We have a three-tier um, hazard screening system. Tier one is what we consider to be the most hazardous, tier three, the least hazardous. We rely extensively on trainings uh, and that is really one of the one of the hearts. <laughs> I think the, the heart of the the program is extensive training, and we have meetings every month with speakers, almost every month, as well as spring trainings, where um, 300 400 people are typically trained each year in those those events. Those were cut a little bit short this year by COVID. We got most of them in um, before the the curtain fell. Um, some of the activities from this past year, we've continued um, with our pilot testing of safer herbicides. This has been a, a high priority since Roundup became uh, categorized as a probable carcinogen. There's one product that we're adding called Weed Slayer, which is a based on clove oil and a particular bacteria actually that uh, purports to, it is purported to take that chemical into the plant tissue, which is one of the magic bullets we've been looking for if there is a magic bullet, uh, ways to kill plants by the roots. And so there are some positive results with that. Uh, we've been doing a lot of testing with a rat contraceptive as an alternative to other forms of rat control, including baits. Um, it's a little early to tell on what the actual success rate has been. It seems promising. We're looking for better data. So we're continuing these activities with Rec Park and also at Pure 96. Um, we've continued our work with pest prevention and affordable housing. We were grant, we won a, uh, a grant last year with uh, Department of Pesticide Regulation to follow up on our previous work in affordable housing. And we did get uh, a fair, we got all of um, our experimental designs and interview forums and lined up our partners just at the point where COVID happened. So part of that is on hold. We're going to proceed with some of the interviews that are involved with that study and then wait for the chance to get into these uh, low-income housing units to uh, check on the success of pest preventive design measures that were installed there. Uh, we also rolled or began to roll out. We completed uh, a new product that I've spoken about before, our pest prevention and landscapes guidelines. Uh, these we're the product of a, a very dedicated working group, multi-agency working group, including a couple of people out of state. And uh, it is available now on our website. It's a downloadable document, also as a database that can be searched. And we're very proud of that. Uh, right about the time, right exactly at the time when we were going to do a formal rollout, I'm afraid that's when COVID happened. And so we are now uh, going through other avenues to get the word out about this and to keep it a living document uh, that can be useful in reducing the need for herbicides and creating uh, a healthier environment. Um, we also completed, this was another big project this year, a, a brand new pesticide use reporting database. This is where we record all pesticide use, 
all pesticides used on city properties. And uh, the old one has been troublesome for many years. This one promises to be a lot more streamlined, streamlined and um, trouble-free. And it was rolled out September 1st. Um, rolling over to pesticide trends, the news is mostly good for 2019. Uh, and I uh, based on what we heard at the Commission uh, Policy Committee meeting, I will expect uh, some increase in herbicide use in 2020. Don't know exactly how much yet, but based on staff reductions and based on the changing patterns of use on, and, and actually on the lack of volunteer labor to do some of the weeding that typically happens in the parks and there are thousands of people that help with that. So nevertheless, we actually had an improvement in our main metric, which was tier one or highest hazard pesticides within the city limits. Uh, last year it was about a 96% reduction since 2010. For this year it was a 97.9% reduction. So that is a good indicator. Uh, mind you, we're already at pretty low levels. So we expect that to bump around. Uh, it's been an 86.3% reduction since 2015, which is when the Roundup determination was made, and a 22.8% reduction since last year. Now, some departments had a little more and, and some a little less, uh, and uh, so the, the story varies. Um, we are continue to listen to public concerns, uh, and these are some of the Typical ones, uh, we didn't have a lot of public comment this year uh, during the public hearing or during the commission meeting. Um, um, what we have been hearing all along are these sort of uh, varying comments. Uh, some people who are very interested in preserving biodiversity uh, and want more herbicide use for managing invasive species. Uh, some people who believe that biodiversity does not warrant the use of herbicides and may feel that herbicides should never be used on city properties, our role has been to strike a balance between these, um, these feelings on the issues and also to, um, to follow our, our commitments to preserve biodiversity and to reduce chemical use. So um, I'm going to summarize the proposed product changes for this year's reduced risk product list, pesticide list, excuse me, it is very, very few changes this time. And I, I consider that a good sign. I think the herbicide restrictions that we spent so much time on in the previous four years, I think have settled into a workable document that people are using. Um, so there were no recommendations for changes to our herbicide restrictions document. And then for the products themselves, we have added one tier one product which is actually that rat contraceptive that I mentioned, Contrapest. And we have added a, a tier three product, a low, low hazard product, which is the weed slayer. Uh, the tier one product is tier one because it's a reproductive hazard, because it's a birth control pill for rats. <laughs> so, but it is preferable to rat baits by far. Um, we have removed a tier two product, an herbicide, really because there are other products with that active ingredient available that people, people preferred. And we did updates on 18 products. Those are mostly administrative changes. Um, um, I think we did increase the restrictions on a 
smoke bomb that is sometimes used for rodent burrows, but that is otherwise these are administrative changes. So that is what you see in your packet as the, um, well, I did, did go through that fast, <laughs> but um, uh, we do have a, a related item to this following on a um, rat control product, the dry ice rat control product. We're going to treat that separately. And I am happy to answer any questions you might have about this year's list. Thanks, Chris. Commissioners, any questions? I know that the policy committee is already deeply aware of everything on the list. Eddie, is there anything um, that you want to say about the policy experience or anything that you want to say as we go into the vote? No, not for this particular item. I do think the rat ice uh, item will be interesting to discuss, though. Commissioner? Stevenson, I have uh, one question. I don't know why I didn't think about this during committee, but the um, question is uh, about Weed Slayer, which um, I think even though we're adding a substance to the list, it's I think we're doing it for good reason and hopeful that it will actually work to replace um, uh, glyphosate. Are other cities looking at that as well? And is there the possibility of getting data from other places, other around the country as to whether it's effective there as opposed to here? Yes, thank you. Good question. The answer is yes. Uh, in fact, some local jurisdictions uh, at Presidio Trust, for example, did some pilot studies, uh, some informal pilot testing, I believe Marin County and also Rec Park. We have been trying it out in the past year uh, and some promising results. It's, it's difficult to tell what it can replace in what situation exactly at this point. Uh, I, and I confess that I was very skeptical about this product. It's not a registered EPA product. It's an exempt product. And that is kind of a red flag for me sometimes because there's no efficacy data on file. But um, you can't argue with results. So we're, we're hopeful on this one. Got it. Thank you, Chris. Sure. Commissioner Wald. Thank you. Uh, I just want to make the following um, observation in light of the fact that this is my umpty ump uh, time to vote on a new um, ripple list. Uh, and, and that is that it, what we're looking at here is um, not just data that document how the use of pesticides has declined so very uh, dramatically uh, in the city and county of San Francisco, but that what um, that reflects is something that's sort of implicit in what Chris uh, talks about, but it represents real and dramatic change in the culture of city agencies in how they think about using pesticides and what they do to not use them. Uh, I think that it's something that every one of us ought to be, including Chris Geiger, uh, ought to be incredibly proud of what uh, the department has managed to accomplish in years it's been since the, um, we started this effort. Um, we should all feel um, a real sense of accomplishment uh, of 
about what has what has happened and how it has happened and think about you know really how hard it is to change uh agency cultures and and what a, an incredibly uh promising and meaningful uh change has occurred here thank you any other questions or comments by commissioners all right let's go to public comment kitty all right, we'll now open it up for public comment. I will put the instructions back up on the screen. So if you'd like to make a public comment regarding this agenda item, please follow the directions on the screen and press star three to be added to the queue. And if you are already on hold in the queue, please wait until it is your turn to speak and you will have three minutes to make your comment. And I do see that we have one call currently in the queue. I'm going to start the timer and I will unmute you now. Can you hear me now? Yes. It's David Pilpel. Uh, good evening, greetings. Uh, sorry I've been busy with other projects. Uh, I still care very much about the commission and the department. I support the continued efforts to reduce pesticide use and transition to less toxic alternatives. Commissioner Wald already uh, talked about the long road to changing culture uh, over time in the city. Um, we're really talking about dry ice as an alternative and rat contraception. Um, okay, it's, um, well, it's 2020, so I guess anything's possible. Um, and hopefully the Supreme Court over time will not uh, ban uh, rat contraception as being, you know, a, a problem. Uh, so I want to conclude by saying I support uh, Chris Geiger's uh, efforts uh, and I support your uh, anticipated action to approve the reduced risk pesticide list for this year. Thanks very much. Thank you for your comment. Okay, and President Stevenson, I'm seeing no additional callers in the queue. All right, seeing no other callers, let's move to a vote. Or actually, do I hear a motion to, hold on, I'm gonna just read it straight off my thing. Do I see, hear a motion to pass resolution file 2020-03-COE, adopting the 2020 reduced risk pesticide list for city properties? Commissioner Wald moves, do I hear a second? Commissioner Wan seconds. We have a motion by Commissioner Wall, the second by Commissioner Wan. Um, any other discussion or changes? All right, let's move to the roll call vote then, please. All right, President Stevenson? Aye. Vice President Ahn? Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Chu? Aye. Commissioner Sullivan? Aye. Commissioner Wald? Aye. And Commissioner Wan? Aye. Passes. Passes. I, and I just want to always thank the policy committee for the work that they do and Chris and your team for the hard, hard work that you do on this every single year. All right. Next item, please, Katie. 
Right. The next item is item number seven, discussion and vote on whether the commission should send letters to Bell Laboratories to support distribution of its rat control alternative product and to the EPA to support a variance to allow dry ice to be used as a pesticide. The sponsor is Deborah Raphael, director, and the speaker is Dr. Chris Geiger, integrated pest management program manager. And this item is for discussion and action. So all I can say is how many other commissions are jealous that they don't have an item called rat ice as an agenda item. So this is a pretty rare opportunity for us here. Um, I will say though, that this is a really interesting story that Chris will share a little bit with you at that, that the policy committee found quite ironic and compelling and a need to weigh in. So while it, it sounds odd, I think it's indicative of the plight that we have to get alternatives onto the marketplace, especially when it comes uh, with dealing with EPA and dealing with um, the very restrictive pesticide requirements. So with that, I will let Chris describe the details. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, can I share the screen, Debbie? So while, while, while I was getting the screen up, um, oh, here we go. Slowly getting better at this. So the, the, the brief, brief story, the brief version of the story is, for me, decades, actually many decades ago, people used to use dry ice to control rodents. You basically put it in their burrows and it, it's, uh, it kills them by asphyxiation. It is... Uh, something that has no secondary wildlife impacts as long as there's nothing living in their burrow. And uh, it, it is uh, quite safe if, it's, if you wear gloves. Um, this has come reappeared as the, uh, we have a, a lot of agencies nationwide trying to reduce the use of rodenticide because of wildlife impacts, especially. And also because- Chris, did you wanna, the slide is on public comment. Do you wanna- oh, I'm sorry. Oh dear, sorry. Okay, here we go. Yeah, so um, the uh, <clears throat> so there was a lot of movement towards uh, finding a way to use dry ice and to use it legally because it was already known to be fairly effective at, at this particular for this particular kind of control. It uh, the EPA made a statement saying no, it's not legal. You can't use it. And uh, we found a way to use it legally by uh, creating a, what you call an exempt product that uses the dry ice. And we had that approved by Department of Pesticide Regulation. We were able during the two month period when it was legal for us to do some pilot testing and confirmed, yes, it's pretty effective. We tried it at Portsmouth Square with some pretty good results. And that, if you've never been there, is is rat capital, um, uh, and uh, and then EPA and DPR said no, you can't use this as an exempt product. And there are some you know sort of bureaucratic reasons for this that I won't go into. But soon thereafter, there was a registered dry ice product available, and this is the way, the, the usual way the EPA operates is by registering a product and th therefore reviewing it and creating a label, making sure that everyone is using it safely. And they registered a product called Rat Ice, and this is from Bell Labs. And so we were 
we were sad, but then suddenly we were happy again because we had a product that we could potentially use that would be a replacement for rodenticide for certain situations. And we waited and waited for it to be distributed on the West Coast. It was not. We bugged them. And we're not alone in this. Uh, we and other agencies with IPM programs. And that was three years ago. And it, it, it is not happening. The distribution out here is simply not happening. And yet we still can't use a product that we know to be a safer alternative. So um, this started out as kind of a failure story for the program activities through the year. We failed to find a way to use this, um, but we'd love to turn it into a success story and do what we can at least to find a way to do so. So what we'd uh, recommend is that um, staff work with the commission to draft two letters to try to push this along, one to Bell Labs, making it clear to them that there are a lot of agencies, uh, institutional uh, IPM programs who would love to have this product available. Is there a way that we can, they can make it available on the West Coast? And uh, the second letter to the EPA to uh, explore some kind of variance for uh, carbon dioxide or dry ice uh, for use in rodents because, uh, because it is a clear wildlife hazard to use some of these most common rodenticides that are, that are around us today. So that, that is the story and uh, the recommendation for the commission to consider. Thanks, Chris. Any questions, commissioners or comments? This is uh, Eddie on. If I may, President Stevenson. Go ahead, Commissioner. Uh, so uh, the policy committee did support uh, also uh, putting forward these letters uh, for reasons of just searching for less lethal, uh, less toxic alternatives, as well as um, generally, I think it's good to do. I, Chris mentioned earlier that you know this was beset by a number of failures, but good advocacy at the end of the day is about pushing through failures as well. And I'm hoping the commission can join the efforts with these letters to advocate the usage of this product. Thanks. Commissioner Wan. Just a very brief comment. It's an amazing story you share. And I wish that we had more innovative pro pro uh, project like this. I just want to um, commend your efforts. Thank you. All right, uh, Debbie. Yeah, Chris, can you just explain how it works? Are we freezing the rats or are we oh. suffocating the rats? I mean, how, how come it, a dry ice works in a burrow? Suffocating the rats and they don't flee from it. It doesn't seem that they flee from it quite as quickly as they would from some other things that you might put down a burrow like smoke. Um, and it sort of sneaks up on them. I know it's, it's not, very, not a very pretty subject to talk about, but it is a public health issue. And we have a lot of those right now, so uh, we don't need any more. Uh, yeah, so it's suffocation, and it requires you know some certain techniques to block the holes so that they that it's effective. All right. Do I hear a motion to approve? We're voting on this, right? The doing the letter. Do I hear a motion to? Um, Write the letter to Bell Labs. So moved. Second. 
Sullivan, seconded by Commissioner Hahn. Sorry, Charles. Uh, don't forget public comment, just a reminder. We will do some public comment. All right, so we have a motion, we have a second. Um, are there any comments by members of the public? President Stevenson, is this a motion just for one letter to Bell Labs or is it uh, a letter as well to the EPA? I just, I can't remember. It's both. It's to both. Great. Unless you want to split it up and for some reason not send to one no. and send to the other. At all. Get it all done. Great. Okay. We'll open it up for public comment on this item. I've put the instructions for making a public comment back up on the screen. If you would like to make a comment, please remember to press star three to be added to the queue and you will have three minutes to make your comment. And I am seeing that we have one caller in the queue. So I will unmute you now and your three minutes will begin. Can you hear me now? Yes. It's David Pilpel again. I walked away from the computer because I couldn't figure out how to mute the thing because I've got it both on WebEx and on SFGov TV. Uh, and by the way, SFGov TV is not getting closed captions right now. So maybe if somebody at SFGTV can sort that out, we can get uh, closed captioning back. I wanted to speak in support of the motion. Let's write letters to Bell Labs and let's get dry ice and suffocate those uh, varmints. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you for your comment. Okay, and I am seeing one additional hand raised in the queue, but not seeing a way to unmute them. Oh, and it disappeared. <laughs> so with that, I'm seeing no more callers in the queue. All right. With no more callers in the queue, let's close public comment and move to the roll call vote, please. Great. Okay, yeah. hey, President Stevenson. Aye. Vice President Ahn. Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Chu. Aye. Commissioner Sullivan. Aye. Commissioner Wald. Aye. And Commissioner Wan. Aye. All right, the motion passes. Next item, please, Kitty. The next item is item eight, the director's report. Updates on Department of the Environment administrative and programmatic operations relating to budget planning, strategic planning, clean air and transportation, climate, energy, public outreach and education, environmental justice, habitat restoration, green building, zero waste, toxics reduction, and urban forestry. And the speaker is Deborah Raphael, director. And the explanatory document is the director's report. And this item is for discussion. Thanks, Debbie. Great. Thank you. Um, and I promise I won't go through all of those subjects. I just want to highlight a few things that I'm particularly excited about that I want to bring to your attention. Um, first, and this is something that um, President Stevenson uh, talked about, that yesterday we went before the Land Use and Transportation Committee to for the first committee hearing of the all-electric new construction ordinance. Uh, we knew that it was likely to be continued there because there are uh, further discussions that need to happen before we finalize the legislation and Supervisor Mandelman has been 
uh, actively leading um, conversations with various stakeholders. It was a uh, a spirited discussion, um, and it was also uh, very supportive, uh, absolutely supportive of the concept. Just some more stakeholders that need to come to the table. Uh, so you have been hearing a lot about how we have been pivoting our messaging uh, in times of COVID. Uh, everything from the Bayren program, which is on energy efficiency, they have been uh, doing webinars on training, uh, depict it, running ads, linking uh, COVID response and public health to uh, moderating the climate uh, in your homes, uh, especially in light of the increased temperature. So we've been uh, trying to promote people to be all electric and look at uh, electric cookstops cooktops and smart thermostats, all in the spirit of, of responding to the pandemic and to climate change. Um, the silver linings, I think, of COVID for us have been the partnerships that we forged with what's now used to be the Emergency Operations Center. Now it's changed its name to the COVID Command Center, the CCC, out of Moscone Center. And that has been a truly fruitful partnership. We have a lot of staff who work there. And we have found ways to align our uh, mission. So for example, uh, there's a big push to get information and protect personal protective equipment out to low income communities. We provide the bags, the reusable bags, 8,000 of them. Um, and in those bags are materials about zero waste and materials about uh, low toxic cleaning products, as well as the personal protective here and information about uh, protecting yourself against COVID. So the COVID response becomes a partner with us in getting our messages out. Uh, as you know, we worked very closely with the Department of Public Health to make sure reusable bags would be allowed back into grocery stores. At the same time, remember the charge for bags was going up to 25 cents. And then there were new requirements on uh, pre-checkout bags. The, for example, the produce bags needing to be compostable. So our Environment Now team has reached out to almost 700 uh, businesses to let them know about the fact that the reusable bags are allowed and that about these new changes. So it's been very challenging for Environment Now to get the word out and to make sure everyone's aware, uh, but they've been doing yeoman's effort in, in any way they can. You recall also we talked last time about our emergency ride home program, how we pivoted that to an essential worker ride home. That's been wildly successful with over 720 rides that we facilitated and reimbursed. So our team is continuing to work with the CCC also to get the word out uh, about to essential workers. So it's been an amazing opportunity to insert ourselves and partner with city agencies who we aren't normally partnering with. And I think that's the blessing of a pandemic. I just wanna, in terms of transportation, there's an interesting um, thing that's happening just to let you know. So Jeff Tumlin, the director of MTA, realized that so many people were interested in what was going on in transit and very concerned about it. So he created a round table on transportation that if any of you commissioners are interested in participating in, please let me know. It, it meets every other week. And at the last one he held, he um, shared something I thought was interesting. There's a, as you can imagine, there's a huge concern about messaging around the safety of transit. And that was something 
Ted Egan talked about, that this is a psychology problem that is uh, that needs to be dealt with. And of course, it's not unique to MTA. So the MTC is putting together a blue ribbon task force, um, which is going to be chaired by the MTC commissioner and Solani, Solano County Supervisor Jim Sparing uh, to, to tackle this and think about how we get this messaging out on a regional scale. So I'm I'm very interested in what they're going to be doing and thinking about how the Department of Environment can support that messaging uh, with our great social media channels and the other ways we do at, at Behavior Change. A couple of milestones. Sunday was the 100-year anniversary of Recology. Uh, and I'm, it made me realize that in 2019, the end of 2019, I put a handout together of all the milestones that 2020 would have. So the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, 150th anniversary of Golden Gate Park, 100th anniversary of, women, of women's suffrage. I mean, and you know, on and on and on, including Recology. Every one of those milestones had a huge event planned and every one of those milestones has passed quietly. So we, in our hearts, can give a big cheer for Recology that they uh, continue to be a thriving company and a wonderful partner after 100 years on the job. Uh, this is New York Climate Week. It's also you know, had to very much shift, but there are 350 events online if anyone's interested in uh, spending some more time in front of your computer. And finally, uh, the thing that is captivating many of my staff is our future move to 1155 Market. Uh, we're in the process of budgeting for carpet and paint and thinking about what we can do on a shoestring and figuring out how we actually pack up our boxes now, keep them in storage for a year or keep them in place for six months and then they move to the other place for another six months before we actually show up to unpack them. So it's, it's quite a process, but in a way there's a blessing with the fact that we don't have to unplug our computers on Friday and, and plug them back in on a Monday. It gives us some time to be creative in our new space. So that is what is keeping us busy, lots keeping us active uh, as we go on this journey. So thank you. Thanks, Debbie. Commissioners, any discussion? All right, let's open it up to public comment, please. Okay, I will pull up the directions. And if you'd like to make a public comment on this agenda item, please follow the instructions I've just pulled up on the screen and be sure to press star three in order to be added to the queue. And you will have three minutes to make your public comment. And I am seeing one caller in the queue. So I will start the timer and I will unmute you now. Can you hear me now? Yes. It's David Pilpel again, hopefully the last time uh, tonight. Uh, although not uh, directly on point to uh, the director's report, I did want to note among the various 
passings of people in the past few months um, was uh, Denise Deanne, who was a longtime board member at uh, San Francisco Tomorrow, a longtime city employee, uh, a, a very early uh, supporter of environmental efforts when Denise worked at the then Department of Social Services, now part of the Human Services Agency. She absolutely gathered up paper clips in an effort to conserve uh, our resources and was just a, a longtime great supporter. Uh, I see Commissioner Wald uh, nodding and, you know, there have been so many people uh, lost in the, the world due to COVID, so many people for other reasons, so many great uh, uh, city people and retired city people. Um, but I, I absolutely wanted to uh, call out uh, Denise as being um, a great loss to, to all of us. Um, and uh, with that, I say thank you to um, everyone listening and, and participating for all of your good continuing efforts. Thanks again. Take care. Thank you for your comment. Okay, and I am seeing no additional callers in the queue. All right, next item, please. The next item on our agenda is item nine, committee reports, and this item is for discussion. Great, Commissioner On, would you please give us a report on the policy meeting? Yes, just very briefly, uh, on September 14th, policy committee had its first meeting since shelter in place. We discussed the uh, reduced risk pesticide list and had presentations from SF Rec and Park, SFPUC, as well as PESTA. And of course, this commission approved that list today. Uh, so I think that gets us all on the right track. Uh, that concludes my report. Thank you. Commissioners, any discussion? All right, let's open up public comment on the policy committee report. Okay, if you would like to make a public comment regarding this agenda item, please follow the instructions on the screen and be sure to press star three and you will have three minutes to make your public comment. And I'm not seeing any callers currently, but maybe we'll just take a brief pause for anyone who would like to call in at this time. I'm still seeing no additional callers in the queue. All right, next item, please. Okay, our next item is item 10, announcements, and this item is for discussion. Commissioners, does anyone have any announcements you'd like to make? All right, seeing no announcements, is there any public comment on this item? Once again, if you would like to make a public comment on this agenda item, please be sure to press star three to be added to the queue, and you will have three minutes to make your comment. Okay, and I'm not currently seeing any public comment, but maybe we'll just take another brief pause. 
Okay, and I'm seeing no callers in the queue. All right, public comments now closed. Next item, please. Okay, the next item is item 11, new business and future agenda items. The speaker is Charles Sheehan, Chief Policy and Public Affairs Officer, and this item is for discussion. Go ahead, Charles. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, Charles Sheehan, Policy and Public Affairs for the Department. Um, the next Operations Committee meeting is slated to be October 21st. The next Policy Committee meeting is slated to be October 26th. And the next um, scheduled commission meeting is slated to be November 24th. Um, coming up for you at your next uh, full commission meeting, we're looking at a number of agenda items um, that may include um, the second part of our racial equity plan presentation. Um, some of that might be contingent upon directions and guidance from the Office of Racial Equity, which they are issuing to all uh, departments. Uh, we're also looking at a larger energy efficiency update uh, and what's going on with the energy efficiency team at the department. And uh, other policy topics, potentially for the full commission or the policy subcommittee, um, there's an SFCTA congestion management, congestion management report um, that we'll want to um, hear from SFCTA on. And there's a sustainable consumption report that we will also want to present on. Thank you. Um, I wanted to confirm the operations committee date. Is that a Monday? Um, I will have to quickly look that up. But if you said October 26th? No, um, the operations committee meeting is October 21. 21st. Okay. And then um, November 24th is that Thanksgiving break week. Not that anyone's going to have much of a break, probably. This year it may not be an issue, but I would still like us to explore changing the bylaws so that we move it a week earlier or a week later as a standard so that we're not trying to fit it in on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Sure, I'm going to assume that. maybe we'll have a quorum this time because where else are we all going to be? But um, that might not always be the case. Okay, we can definitely uh, explore changing the bylaws and moving that date. Thanks. Any discussion, questions, comments, commissioners? All right, seeing none, let's move to public comment, please. Okay, if you would like to make a public comment on this agenda item, please follow the instructions on the screen and be sure to press star three to be added to the queue. You will then have three minutes to make your public comment. And I'm not currently seeing any callers in the queue, but we can take another brief pause in case anyone would like to call in. Okay, and I'm seeing no callers in the queue. Great, next item, please. Okay, the next item on the agenda is item 12, adjournment. And this meeting is adjourned and the time is 7.37 p.m. Thank you for joining us. Thanks everybody for your diligence and your attention.